0: Hey, welcome to the Project Church Podcast. My name is Caleb Cole. I'm the lead pastor here at Project Church in downtown Sacramento. And we're so glad that you came to hear this word. We believe this is going to encourage you, build you up, and give you life. So get ready to receive a message from God. I want to welcome you if you're new. We got another elephant in the room that we're hitting on today. But I do want to make a quick announcement for you. Uh, We've been in talks with another church in South Sac uh, about potentially merging, uh, where we would take them on as a campus of ours. It's something that we had done in the past. If you guys know, we used to have a campus in West Sac and downtown. And and what happened was when COVID hit, we couldn't meet at the school anymore. So we brought all of us together here at this new building because we had just moved into it. And uh, we've stayed here all together. Well, recently we were contacted, like I said, over the last few weeks, a church whose pastor uh, had left and they had been unable to find a pastor. And so they approached us and asked, would we be interested or consider taking them on as a campus uh, where we would provide all leadership and essentially turn it into Project Church uh, South Sac. So they're actually having service right now talking about that. Um, And then they're going to be... Praying and then voting over the next couple weeks if that is something that God wants to do. So, what I wanted to ask you is if you would pray with us. Uh, We met with our board about it and we feel uh, fairly confident that God is in this, but how many know we don't just want a good thing, we want a God thing. And so, we want if this is God, we want to make sure it's God. And so, we're all doing our due diligence, we're praying. But it's exciting, it's an exciting opportunity. Um, God's doing something, we've been growing. Our 10 o'clock service, I told some of them they need to go to one of the other services because it was like standing room only in here. Um, We've actually had, this month is our best month of giving of the year yet. So come on, in July, which is not normal. And so I think God is preparing us for expansion. So I just wanna ask you, would you pray with us? Pray that if this is God, that it would all uh, come to pass, he'd give us wisdom. And uh, potentially see this merger happen. So thank you guys. Thanks for praying. Just want to give you a little vision update. Exciting times we're in as a church. Uh, So I want to jump in here. We are in the Elephant Room series. Next week, uh, Alex is going to be sharing on the gospel and materialism. uh, One that I think we all struggle with, battle with. But I wanted to just give you a heads up. Because originally, I was going to hit today the gospel and sexuality. And I was gonna talk about homosexuality. I was gonna talk about sexuality in the church. I was gonna talk about the transgender movement, but I realized I couldn't do it all in one week. And so I want you to come back next week for materialism and then the week after, I'm gonna be hitting the gospel and the transgender movement. So we're gonna talk about it then. So I won't be addressing that today, uh, but we are gonna be talking about the gospel and sexuality. So I just wanna give you a heads up with what's coming. So if it's your first week, you may be like, what did I get myself into? What is this church? Uh, they're talking about sexuality. And it's funny because uh, we have a couple in our church. They're actually here today. And they told me the story because a few years back, they invited some of their friends that they had been inviting for years. And they had been wanting them to come to Project. And they finally got them in the room And it was the Sunday we were starting a brand new series on the Song of Solomon. And Chrissy and I preached a message that day on like, I think it was eight ways to have great sex. And after the service, they were like, we are never coming back to this church. Um, I can't believe the pastor would talk about that in church. And let me tell you, that is actually the perspective of a lot of people. But what I've realized, is these are the topics that we're dealing with. It's the topics that the world is discussing. And in the church, we're running from them. And we need to talk about this. The Bible talks about it first. So why would we not talk about it second? So I just want to tell you right now, um, it's going to be an interesting day. So get ready. Buckle your seatbelts because uh, we're going to go in. We're going to talk today about the gospel and sexuality. Let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 18. I'm just going to read 18 here. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So I want to start here because I want to let you know that this topic of sexuality is so important because sexual sin is a different kind of sin. The Bible actually tells us it's different than every other sin. Now, all sins are the same in the eyes of God. He doesn't forgive one sin more than another. He doesn't elevate certain sins over other sins. But he does tell us through the scriptures that sexual sin has a greater impact on your life than any other sin. It literally is impacting your own body so it has a different set of circumstances that come with it and that's why we need to talk about this topic because what I would say to you the elephant in the room is not homosexuality which I'm going to talk about here in a moment the real elephant in the room is the sexual immorality in the church that we're okay with that's the real elephant in the room That the church, sexual immorality is rampant and we don't talk about it. We give people passes. We think it's fine. And and we don't want to address it. But the Bible clearly brings it up multiple times. Paul comes for the church in Corinth when he's talking and writing to Timothy. He's like, you got to call these people out on their sexual immorality. So we're going to do a little bit of that today. So this word sexual immorality in the greek is the word "pornēia," which is where we get our word for pornography this word by definition is anything outside of the genesis 2 marital covenant and i'm going to read that here in a moment but any sin outside of a genesis 2 marital covenant falls under this these lines of sexual immorality now i know this is a heavy topic uh Maybe some of you are uneasy right now, so I want to do something to just put us all at ease, okay? Can I do that for you? So I'm going to read a list. I'm going to ask you to respond to the list at the end. Here we go. Pornography, masturbation, sexual intimacy, and cohabitation outside of marriage. Polygamy, oral sex outside of marriage, same-sex sexual expression, sexualizing yourself with intentionally sexually provocative dress, This is some of y'all's Instagram posts. Adultery, lust of the eyes, and emotional fantasizing. Now, if you have ever dealt with any of these things, including lust of the eyes, I want you to raise your hand. And I'm going to raise my hand with you. So I want you to look around. Most hands are up. Anyone whose hand is not up is a liar. No, no, maybe you're not a liar, and if you're not a liar, you need to come talk to me and tell me how you figured this thing out because I need, yeah, some advice. I'm human too. So anyways, I just want to put us all at ease today. Um, We all deal with sexual immorality because we're human. You see, Jesus took the law to another level, didn't he? He's like, if you even look at a woman lustfully with your eyes, you've already committed adultery. He took it to the next level because the disciples, they're trying to, and the Pharisees, they're trying to get Jesus and and question him about adultery and unfaithfulness. And he's like, listen, if you even think it, you've done it. That's my standard. Jesus raises the standard for us as followers of God. And so I wanted to kind of have everyone raise their hand and some of you didn't, which is cool, um, to say this. We're not a bunch of good people telling the bad people how to be good. Not here. We're a bunch of forgiven people confessing our need for a Savior. We are, every one of us in this room. Forgiven people confessing our need for a Savior. And listen, we are all broken. We have all messed up. We all have sexual sin in our lives. And we all need God's grace. So Jesus gave the command to love people. And we talk about that. That's one of our, uh, part of our mission here is loving people, making disciples, and planning churches. That's the threefold mission of Project Church. We love people. But the New Testament actually gives the command to destroy false ideologies. So if today you're like, Caleb, this is a little aggressive. This is a little intense. I'm not coming at people. I'm really coming to destroy some ideologies that I believe are destroying people. And that is what is connected to the topic of the day, which isn't just sexuality. I actually want to talk about the sexual revolution. So some of you were born in the 60s. Give it up for the people who are seasoned in this house. Some of you are like me. You were born in the 80s. Come on, 80s babies. What, what, what? Anyone who was born later than that, they probably don't even know what the sexual revolution is. But we know from history and documentaries and movies, the sexual revolution was this time of a sexual expression. Anything goes, do what feels good, express yourself, right? And this is what was rampant and has continued on to today. To where I would say to you, the sexual revolution is the predominant religion of this day. It is the predominant religion. It's not Christianity, Catholicism, Islam. No. The sexual revolution is the predominant religion of our day. Romans 1 tells us that once people stop worshiping God, they find something else to worship. And You know what we typically worship when we stop worshiping God? We worship ourselves. And so sexuality has become the way in which, and sex in general, and the sexual revolution, in which we worship ourselves. So I am not a politician. I'm a pastor. And what I found, though, is in church, we try to be politicians sometimes. Like, can I be real? I didn't want to talk about this topic. Like, this wasn't like this week, like, oh, this is so fun preparing for this word. Some, some weeks I'm like pumped about the word. I'm going to encourage people and build people up. And this was like, oh, I'm coming to not baby Christians. Because you know what happens when you baby Christians? What do you get? Baby Christians. And so unfortunately I, I may feel to some of you like, man, he's really coming with, with a challenge for us. Yes. Because I felt like right now. The elephant in the room, we're going to talk about homosexuality because y'all want to know, and some of you are here just for that. What does the church believe? What does the Bible say? What is Caleb going to say? But the real elephant in the room is the sexual morality that is rampant in the church, and we're just okay with it. So in the church, I do think we've just become comfortable Porn, lust, sex before marriage, cohabitation. We're just fine. It's become the norm. I do premarital counseling. It has become the norm. It's rare in my premarital counseling that the couple will even say that they're abstain, abstaining from sex. And I'm not here again to judge, but I am here to call us to a higher standard. And the standard isn't my standard. The standard is the biblical standard. And so right now, I just want to say to you, this is the lens through which I see the world. And I'm going to share today, I'm about to jump in. We're going to talk about homosexuality. Uh, There's there's five scriptures we're going to look at that address it specifically. Six, if you count Sodom and Gomorrah. We're not going to go there. But I am seeing the world. My worldview is through the lens of the scriptures. Now, how people see the scriptures is different, but we have to start at the point where you understand where I'm coming from, my epistemology, which is, is, is my worldview, is that I see it through the lens of the Word of God that it is the infallible, inerrant Word of God, meaning it was God-breathed and it's without mistake. Now, humans, we do make mistakes, but I believe God's word is without mistake, and, and so I'm gonna share from that perspective, but then I'm gonna give how I interpret the scriptures to you today and how we as a church interpret the scriptures, because I'm not sharing anything that the eldership of this church has not covered me with and, and agrees with as well. So I just want you to know I'm just out, not out here doing my own thing, sharing whatever I feel or think. I'm covered by our elders of our church. So let's jump in. We're going to talk about homosexuality. There's five scriptures that specifically talk about this. Now, I actually listened to a bunch of messages on sexuality, and, um, and, and I thought where pastors would address homosexuality. And in every one, it was really interesting to me because I'm, I'm listening, and they all came from the presupposition that the Christians in the room believed that homosexuality was a sin. And I'm not going to make that assumption today because I think in today's day and age, in 2023, there are probably many in this room who would say, no, I don't understand why it, why it should be considered a sin. Love is love. And so what I want to do is really break down the scriptures so that we can better understand the text. So five scriptures, like I said, that address homosexuality. Six if you count Sodom and Gomorrah. We're going to throw that one out. Because that's like a very extreme situation um, of a giant group of men trying to to sexually exploit uh, two angels. Very weird text. We're not going to go there today. But here's the arguments for homosexuality. Number one argument as to why homosexuality should be allowed. You can be a Christian and, and, and outward, overt. Uh, homosexual, you could, as long as you're in a same-sex, loving, monogamous relationship. They would say, Paul had no context when he wrote, because Paul is the primary source. He's the only one that addresses this topic. Paul had no context for a loving, monogamous, non-exploitive, same-sex, married relationship. That is the number one argument for why homosexuality. You can be a Christian, you can be homosexual, because Paul had no context for it. In the first century, they didn't understand it. They didn't see it the way we see it, where marriage is allowed and legal and and actually celebrated. Second argument for homosexuality is the word homosexual wasn't even used in the Bible until 1946. And I'm going to address this, which that's actually true. So let's jump in. Before we... Go to the five scriptures, though. I want to set the stage with another scripture that I think does inform our thinking theologically, and that's Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to read verse 18 through 24. We're going back to the beginning. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. God created everything. It wasn't perfect. In fact, he saw it wasn't good because man was alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And this word helper um, in in the original language is a, a word that's also used other places in the Old Testament and the New Testament referring to the Holy Spirit and Jesus. So hear me ladies, helper does not mean less than, does not mean subversive. It is something that God created with equality. Now out of the ground, The Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. I love this. He didn't, Take woman from Adam's foot, a bone from his foot that he would lord over him. He didn't take lord over her. He didn't take it from a bone from his head that he would domineer or lord over her. He took it from her, from Adam's side, that they would walk side by side, wanting to be fruitful and multiply as God commanded them. That was the first command: subdue the earth. And how do you know ribs are also awesome (laughs) and really tasty? Then the man said, sorry, that was just for fun. It's the third service. Then the man said, Adam has this like incredible poem here. It's really cool. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Let me get some observations from this. First of all, Jesus is asked about marriage, and he goes back. So in Mark chapter 10, and we see it in Matthew 2, Jesus is asked about marriage, and he goes back and he quotes this text. He says, this is what it is. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So Jesus actually affirms and acknowledges marriage being between a man and a woman. This is what Jesus affirms as it relates to marriage. So people will argue, one of the arguments is, well, Jesus never talked about it, but Jesus did affirm marriage and he only affirmed it between a man and a woman. He quotes this in Genesis chapter 2. Not only that, but looking at this text, it actually says woman is like man. The, the original word is the word connecto, which is this word that's, that's implying like but opposite. As but against. He's denoting that they're similar but they're different. How many know men and women, we're different? We're just different. I'm going to talk about it in two weeks. We'll get there. But we're different. Jesus, when asked to talk about marriage, references our created being, number one, as two genders. And he then defines marriage as between a man and a woman, starting with their biological differences. I wanted to set the stage because sometimes we argue, and I've heard theologians argue, Jesus never talked about it. He he never referenced the word or the the idea of homosexuality. But he affirmed marriage between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman. So we have to set that that ground level thinking so let me go to leviticus okay now i'm going to walk you through the five verses that talk specifically about same sex relationships leviticus 1822 you shall not lie with a man or a male as with a woman it is an abomination Strong language. Leviticus 2013, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. they shall surely be put to death. their blood is upon them. Now, I've never taught this and this week it, it, it was revealed to me as I was studying that this is the Mosaic law. you guys understand this, right? Moses gave the law to the people of Israel, Um, as they've exited Egypt and they're now in the land of Canaan and the Canaanites are all around them and the Canaanites engage in all kinds of debauchery, sexual practices, um, um, child sacrifice and God gives this law to Moses he says I want you to to institute this for my people to set them apart that they would look different from the world. And this is passed down from generation to generation in Judaism. So I've never thought this or realized this or heard this taught. And God, show me this. Jesus and his disciples, and I, and I read a theologian that affirmed this. Jesus and his disciples would have held this sexual ethic. Because this is what was passed down to them from generation to generation. The Mosaic Law. So they would have held this sexual ethic for Jews all the way down to Jesus and his disciples, just as it is still today for most of the Middle East. I want you to think about Islam. I want you to think about most Middle Eastern countries. They still hold this sexual ethic that homosexuality is an abomination to them. So the question, though, is does this apply? This is what I said at the beginning. Paul has no context of it, and they probably didn't in this day. Does this apply to monogamous, loving, non-exploitive marital relationships? Or is this just referring to non-consensual, exploitive type of interaction? We can't answer that from this text. In fact, um, this doesn't address women. It only addresses men. So we got to keep going. Are you with me? Okay, great. Let's go to the third scripture. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Fourth verse, 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, the word there is porneia, like I told you earlier, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now look at this. Both of these texts where Paul is writing to Timothy and then to the church in Corinth, which you need to read all of Corinthians, they had all kinds of sexual sin going on. Paul's calling them out. He's like, I hear one of you is sleeping with your father's wife and you need to cut that out. This is a vice list. They're vices for the church that they have fallen into. You saw, I read you a whole list, right? In both of those texts, it's a bunch of things that they're dealing with. Not just sexual immorality, homosexuality. This is where he compares the way God calls us to live and how God calls all others outside of Christ to live. He's saying, you need to be different than the culture. But some of you are still going, but wait. I thought they added the word homosexual later in 1945. Yeah, because up till then we didn't have a word to define the words that were used. So I'm going to share here the original language and then why some people... More liberal theologians also dismiss this or these scriptures. So the, the Greek words that are used here are arsenakoti and pederasty. Which pederasty is where we get our word for pedophile. This is where it comes from. It's translated here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, the word pederasty, as homosexual. But we have to understand the Greco-Roman culture that they were living in and what was going on contextually. So... What was happening in this day was there were older men who were wealthy, usually wealthy, who would take under their wing a younger man to mentor him. They would teach him warfare. They would teach him a trade, how to be an aristocrat, the ways of state. And then as payment for this, the younger man would provide sexual favors to the older man. And this is the word that's used here, this word of pederasty. So this is why some theologians would say, well, that's not a same-sex, loving, monogamous relationship. So it it doesn't apply. And so this was a common practice among Romans and Greeks. This mentoring, but it went even further to this, where they would actually hire slaves, poor people, that would also provide sexual favors for them of the same sex. Now, all of these men were married because it was the common practice that you would be married, but then they would have these relationships on the side. So obviously it's, it's adultery, first and foremost. And so Paul is calling it out and saying, this needs to stop. We're set apart because there are Gentiles, Roman uh, uh, Gentiles who are being saved, but are still living out these sexual immoral practices. Does this make sense? And so within this, Again, is the question, well, Paul has no context for loving, monogamous, same-sex relationships. And many theologians have, have affirmed this for the last several decades. But recently, there's been more theologians coming out and saying, well, that's not actually true. In fact, liberal theologians that have affirmed that same-sex love, lifelong monogamous was present in the Greco-Roman world. There's a book, Love Between Women um, by Bernadette Burton and here's what she said. She is a liberal um, historian, uh, not a Christian. Contrary to the view that the idea of sexual orientation did not develop until the 19th century, the astrological sources demonstrate the existence in the Roman world of the concept of lifelong erotic orientation and committed relationships. I'm citing this one. I could cite many others. But this helps us to understand that Paul would have understood the idea of lifelong erotic orientation, lifelong love, commitment, um, non-exploitive, committed marriage. There are multiple examples affirming that this was the practice where even people were being married in this day. Same sex. Last verse, you still with me? Number five, Romans 1, 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. This is the hardest passage. Most scholars could write off the others that I read. They could say, oh, it was the Old Testament, it didn't address women. Oh, it was this other uh, e- exploitive relationship. Uh, with a rich person and a a poorer person. But we come to here and it gets more difficult to negate. Paul is referring here and saying that same-sex relationships in any form are a sinful distortion of the way God created us to be. Now here's what's crazy. The majority of Christian history, this has been the predominant view. It wasn't questioned. It was just accepted. There was no other interpretation. But now it's a cultural issue. Now our culture has shifted. And like I said, I'm a pastor, not a politician. Um, in 2012, a president ran for re-election. His name was Barack Obama. And he was at four years... And up till 2012, he had been anti-same-sex marriage. You may not remember this. Some of you are too young. But what happened was in 2012, the cultural perspective and the accepted belief shifted to where culture began to advocate for same-sex marriage. And so what did Barack Obama do as a good politician would? He ran his 2012 campaign mainly on that he was pro-gay marriage, and he was reelected. I'm not judging. I'm just telling you this is what's happening in our culture. Chrissy loves Michelle, guys. It's cool. She really does. Here's what Paul's doing. He's writing to the Gentiles, and he's saying your number one sin is idolatry. I said it to you earlier, right? The primary religion of today is the sexual revolution. And he's writing to the Gentiles and he's saying, you should be worshiping God, but instead you're worshiping something else. And when we confuse God and the things that God has made, we begin to worship things. And our, our default is to worship ourselves. And to worship even our sexual um, desires. And so today, I I just wanted to tell you as a church, the number one question we get, and I get it all the time, and I want you to hear me. I have had, and I still have relationships with gay people, um, people who are same-sex attracted, but, but are living abstinent. I have a mentor in my life who I meet with every other week who has been same-sex attracted his entire life since he was molested as a child and has engaged in same-sex relationships at times but has chosen over the last several decades to live celibate as he now mentors men and women of God in the ways of God. And this is his way of honoring God and he, he'll be the first to say, I've even messed up along the way though. We're all broken. I'm saying this to say, the number one question I get when people come is, are you open and affirming? That's the question that people show up and they ask us. And I get emails and I have conversations and I sit down for coffee. And I always say to them the same thing. I'm open. You are welcome here. These doors will be open to everyone. No matter your background, your sin, what you struggle with, I affirm you as a created son and daughter of God, but I cannot affirm same-sex relationships. And that's my my personal conviction, my theological convi- conviction, and our church's theological conviction with the covering of our elders, that we we cannot affirm that relationship. So I've never done a same-sex wedding, and I never would. Because it goes against, for me, a core theological belief, which is that that is a distortion on what God intended and created originally. Now, the question I also get, well, when it comes to homosexuality, is it nature or is it nurture? Now, this would get to the point of opinion now. I don't know. I know we're all born with a sin nature. I know that there is a possibility that we could have a propensity towards same-sex attraction. But I also know that when you really dig in and study, that there's a strong advocacy for nurture being the primary reason that people are drawn towards same-sex relationships. When you look at the astronomical numbers of those who have been, uh, who have been um, abused sexually, molested as children that then become homosexuals, the fatherless epidemic of the homosexual community, you could also advocate and argue for nurture. I don't think at this point or for me that it matters. Ultimately, what, what I say is we love everyone, but I love you enough to tell you the truth of what I believe God's word says. And so when I sit down with people who are, who are same-sex attracted or living outright, full, gay lifestyles, I tell them the same thing every time. This is between you and God. And what the Bible says is you need to, with fear and trembling, work out your salvation. It's not up to me. Now, if you want to ask me what I believe and what I think the Bible says, I'm going to tell you. But I'm going to do it with love in my heart and acceptance as I wrap my arms around you. And we have gay people that attend this church. We, we have people who are living in gay lifestyle that attend this church. But we've always been clear with them. We love you as you are. But when they say, but love is love, I say, well, biblically, that's actually not true what we see is that love is a distortion on God's original created intent for humanity. So I want to shift gears and I'm going to wrap up in the next 10 minutes-ish. I want to shift gears and bring this to everyone because while I, I just addressed homosexuality because I felt like I had to. Like what does the Bible say? Sexual immorality impacts everyone in this room the homosexuality topic while it is influencing us in terms of our perspectives and, and our ideologies it actually impacts a very small percentage of people but sexual morality as a whole impacts every person every one of us and that's why i started by talking to you about the sexual revolution because ultimately we have to begin to understand that Whenever God makes something, the world always counterfeits it. And the sexual revolution is a counterfeit of the Jesus revolution that he ushered in 2,000 years ago. So I wanna contrast these so you can begin to understand. Listen, the sexual revolution says it's all about self expression, express yourself. I said it earlier. The Jesus revolution is about self denial. Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. The sexual revolution says, worship sex. The Jesus revolution says, worship me, worship God. The sexual revolution is all about pride. We just came out of the month. The Jesus revolution says, humble yourself. The sexual revolution says, you were born this way. The Jesus revolution says, you must be born again anew. The sexual revolution says, that's just the way I am. The Jesus revolution says, you can be made into a new creation. The sexual revolution is about tolerance. The Jesus revolution is about repentance. Jesus said, you must repent and be saved. So it doesn't matter what you would say sexually identify as at this moment. I want to tell you at the end of the day, we all must stand before a holy God and repent of our brokenness and receive his grace on our lives. So there's two primary tenets of the sexual revolution. The first is your sexual desires are your core identity. And the second is that fulfillment is found in unrestricted sexual expression. So let's talk about the first tenet. Your sexual desires are your core identity. That's not just something you did or experienced, The sexual revolution would say, if you had a same-sex experience, you are gay. Our activity in life is always determined by our identity. Identity is a fixed reality. Once the sexual revolution can get you to believe that your sexual experience is, is now your identity, you are locked in. Everyone experiences, and here's what's crazy, everyone experiences thousands of desires that are constantly changing. My desires at 42 are very different than my desires at 21. And you have to decide which ones you're going to act on and which ones you're going to deny. Like every day I have desires, urges, and I decide I'm going to act on that and I'm not going to act on that one. And if you are not committed to the authority of the Scriptures, you will always be a slave to what the culture says is right. And that's my issue with progressivism is it's always a moving target. And there's no foundation to stand on. It's whatever culture says is morally right in the moment. But we don't stand that way as followers of Christ. We stand on the authority of the scriptures of the word of God and we root ourselves as this is my world. This is my foundation. So I have an issue when our desires become our identity. And that that is what is spoken over people's lives. You see, the world is ruled by the father of lies. And the enemy wants you led by your activity or your proclivity. And if the keys will come back. But someone needs to hear it in this place. You are not your sin. You are not your failures. Only God can determine and give you identity. You are not your sexual desires. You have a greater purpose and call than what you have experienced sexually in your life. I want to tell you a story. I was 27 years old and I was a youth pastor in Massachusetts. And I had two students that were both 14-year-old boys going through puberty. And they were awkward Y'all remember being 14 and puberty and awkward? I do. The ladies had no interest in them. And one of them finally confessed to one of our leaders who brought it to me that they had been going into a closet at the church, like during services and at youth, and been, um, been experimenting sexually with one another. And one of them told a youth leader and ratted himself out. And then he brought it to me. said, bro, you deal with this. I'm not dealing with this. And as a 27-year-old pastor who had never had a class on this, um, I brought their parents in to meet with me. And I met with them individually. And the first one, the mom came in. And she was his foster mom. And she was like, yeah, okay, I don't really care. Like, can you deal with it? And I was like, all right like, I-, I will, and she left, and the other parents came in, dad, mom, and I knew them, they were involved in our church, and both these boys were involved in our church, on the worship team, on the production team, and I began to tell them, and the dad jumped up out of his seat, and he screamed at the top of his lungs, I can't listen to this, and he kicked my door open and walked out, and his mom was sitting there and she asked me a question that then both these boys asked me. He said, She said, Is my son gay? And I looked at her in her eyes and I said, Absolutely not. I said, A sexual experience does not define a person. And then I sat with both of these boys for the next two years because I was a youth pastor there two years longer and I met with them uh, weekly, every other week or so, speaking into their lives, discipling, discipling them, mentoring them. And they both would ask me for the first few months, am I gay? And every time I'd say, absolutely not. And I'd tell them, you're a child of God and you're right now figuring out what he's called you to And I spoke truth over their lives. And what's cool is I'm connected to them still. Here we are. uh, What? That was 27. I'm 14, 15 years later. And they're both married, have children. And one of them messaged me, I want to say a year, year and a half ago. He sent me a message and he said, Caleb, I just wanted to say thank you for telling me who I was see the world wants to define us by our experience he said thank you for telling me who I was I have a beautiful family wonderful children amazing marriage and I don't know if I would have got through that time if there wasn't truth being spoken over me the world wants to speak lies over us you are not your failures church no matter what they are you are not your sexual desires, church, no matter what they are. The second tenet is fulfillment is found in unrestricted sexual expression. You see, the word and the world are always at odds with each other. So the question you have to make is, or you have to ask is, which will you let override the other? Because I read to you, First Corinthians six eighteen, that you ought to flee from sexual immorality. I'm talking about run, run away. It is against your own body. But watch this, verse 19. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, throw it up for me. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. The world says it's my body. Jesus says, no, it belongs to me. The world says suppress, or, or if you suppress it, it'll hurt you. You got to express it. Jesus says, no, crucify your flesh. Take up your cross. Follow me. Renew your mind. You know what I love? The creator of the universe, he designed sex. He made sex. And he made it to procreate. You know what he could have done? He could have been like, yeah, you pull a hair, you plant it in the ground, and a baby pops out. How lame would that have been? But instead, he said, I'm going to create this sexual experience for you to enjoy and to be fruitful and multiply with. The Bible is not anti-sex. It's pro-sex within boundaries that end in blessing, not pain. And I'm about to give you some stats to show you the pain that this world has experienced because of the sexual revolution that we've walked through. But how many of you know fire in a fireplace is a blessing? It's warm and the ambiance is amazing and and there's comfort and it's homey. But if that fire gets out of the boundaries of that fireplace, what happens? It could catch the whole house on fire and kill everyone inside of it. Once again, sex is a blessing meant to be enjoyed in the confines of boundaries. The Genesis 2 boundaries. A man and a woman married. Married. The sexual revolution began in the 1960s and what has happened since then, sociologists report, is the happiness levels in Americans have been dropping steadily ever since then. A complete collapse. Progress is not working. We are more depressed, anxiety-filled, and medicated than ever. Generation Z right now is the most angry, lonely, depressed generation on record. Divorce rates have doubled since the 1960s. You can see right here, and some of you are like, well, they're dropping right now. Uh, Mostly because we're just cohabitating. That's the norm. They've doubled since the 1960s, resulting in an epidemic of fatherlessness. Around 40% of children are growing up without a father. More children are growing up with a pet in their home than a father in their home fatherlessness statistically is the number one contributor to all of the all five of the following society ills crime homelessness poverty unwed pregnancy and future fatherlessness so men of God in this house listen to me you want to change the world rise up and be the man of God father that you've been called to be act like men and lead in a powerful way 80 to 90% of all teenagers have been exposed to pornography use with the average age of first exposure being 11 years old. A recent study of 16 to 18 year olds found that nearly every individual had learned about sex by watching porn. There were maybe one or two in this entire study of thousands that had not seen pornography. One in three underage teenagers noted to having seen non-consensual nudes of other minors. You know what I'm talking about? Child pornography. Sexual abuse is at its highest rate in our nation's history. One in four women will be sexually abused by the age of 18. Cohabitation is the national norm. Don't come for them, Caleb. And it is actually shown by non-Christian sociologists to increase the chances of divorce by 50%. Some of you would say, well, we're practicing for marriage. Well, I would say you may be just practicing for divorce. The data shows the satisfaction of those with multiple partners is 10 times less than those with one sexual partner in marriage. Here's what the Wall Street Journal just said. Well, it was in 2022. Too risky to wed in your 20s, not if you avoid cohabitating first. Research shows that marrying young without ever having lived together with a partner makes for some of the lowest divorce rates. like God knew what he was doing I'm not here to judge anyone condemn anyone but I am here to challenge you with the word of God you see the sexual revolution movement that promised liberation personal satisfaction is actually producing misery and brokenness some of you think God just gives us rules because he loves rules god gives us rules because he loves us and he knew what was best for us and so he created a blueprint a rubric and he said this is what it looks like now listen to me marriage is still hard i need to yell it marriage is still hard i'm coming up on 15 years of marriage with my wife let me tell you it is difficult I'm not saying it's easy, but I am saying if we follow God's word, I believe that he can give you life and life to the fullest. That's what he wants for you. He doesn't just love rules. He loves you and he wanted to put you in the confines of this is what is best for your life. So how do we end this? 1 Peter 1, 13-16 says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You're not who you were. Those sins of your past, the sexual failure of your past, that's not what defines you. Don't go back to that life. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. I think the church is just trying to stop people from being homosexual. The church needs to just encourage people to be holy. Just be holy and watch everything else work itself out. Just seek holy. And I'm not saying you got to be perfect. I'm saying seek the holiness of God and ask the holiness of God to change how you think and act and move and breathe and watch His holiness transform even your own desires. Listen, my desires have changed through the years. I remember being a young man, and it's crazy. And as a man, I was attracted to many women. But as you continually crucify the desires of your flesh, it's incredible to watch that your desires change. To where the lust of my eyes of my past does not hold me the way it, it did 10, 20, 30 years ago. To where it's easier now than ever to be faithful to my wife. Why? Because I've crucified the wrong desires, and I've held on to the right ones, which is my wife in the confines of that loving, monogamous relationship. Sin will harden you. One time is never enough, like those chips. You can't eat just one. You do that sin over and over again until you're a slave to the thing that you once had been set free from. And I want to tell you today, you cannot always count on conviction. I think sometimes we're waiting to change for us to feel God. I'll stop sinning when I feel the conviction, when God hits me hard, uh, when I actually want God again. No, you have to choose to be obedient even when you don't feel like it. And so today, maybe you're feeling the conviction, but maybe you're not. But ultimately, the truth has been spoken over you. Today, with heads bowed and eyes closed, I did this in the first two services, and hundreds of hands went up. I was actually shocked. But I think in a room this size, I know that there's someone that needs to respond you're here you say Caleb there is sexual sin in my life I don't know what it is it's there's a variety of sexual sins but you know that there's something in your life that has a hold of you and today you want to be set free today you want to choose holiness right now there's no judgment no one's looking around I want every eye closed if you have sexual sin in your life and you need to be free of it you need God's touch on it I want you to slip your hand up and put it down real quick go yes yes all over the room all over the room all over the room all over the room Put them down. Jesus, today I speak freedom over your people. God, as we have looked at your word and and we've talked about the sexual immorality, the pornea that, that has a hold of so many of us, God, the real elephant room in the church, the elephant in the room of the church, I pray right now that you would begin to set free those who have been been bound. You would set free our minds. God, you would set free our thoughts. You would set free from us going to those websites. You would set us free from pursuing wrong relationships. Even just just when we see people on the street, God, begin to take those thoughts captive. Lord, right now, I pray for freedom to be released in this house like never before. We need accountability we maybe need to confess to someone but ultimately we need the holy god to wrap his loving arms around us and say there is no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus there is no shame there is no guilt but today i believe there is conviction and there's going to be freedom that follows so jesus follow it with freedom I can't wait to hear the testimonies of the freedom that people have found in this house, of the freedom that people have found in their lives. So, Lord, we ask for your help, your strength, your touch. We can't do it without you. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Hey, thanks so much for tuning in to the Project Church podcast. We pray and hope that this message encouraged you, built you up, and gave you life. We want to ask that you would invest right now in what God is doing here in downtown Sacramento. We've just recently moved in to our all-new building in the waterfront, Old Sacramento District. We want to ask you, if you'd like to give, you can go to projectchurch.com forward slash give to invest. Let's see all that God can do through us.